Please be advised, this episode may include depictions of murder, sexual content, and foul language that is not suitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. We are back from our Seattle trip. Back in the saddle again. Mm-hmm. We saw our friend's son get married. Kind of. We went to the reception. That's what everyone did. <laughs> kind of, sort of, maybe. And his new wife looked really, really... He and both... I mean, they both did. They both looked really happy and mm-hmm. everything was awesome. There were a lot of people there. They even had a full-on roasted pig. Yep. It was crazy. She was Hawaiian or Some, Samoan or something. Yeah. Say. So it was pretty cool. Big, huge family. Yeah, it that was, was it was really awesome. We also got to catch up with some really good friends, visit with our son and his girlfriend. It was a long weekend full of fun. It went yeah. by way too fast, in my opinion, but I think it it's because we does. were... Well, we were having a really good time. We, we were, were busy. We were. We had great dinners and great outings, just hanging mm-hmm. out. Yep. Went to a sportsman's event. Yeah. <laughs> went to the casinos. Yes, tons Won of casinos. Won a million time. dollars. No, we didn't. No, okay. no, we we probably lost. No, we didn't. Lo- we don't have a million dollars to lose, but you know, it felt like it, <laughs> right? Uh, no, I wish we, we won a million dollars. That would be a great, great intro. Mm-hmm. Look, we are million dollar winners. <laughs> nope, nope, we're not. Not so still much. living normal life. I had mm-hmm. to get back to work. No mm-hmm. million dollar wins. Yeah, back to reality. Right. So we're settled back in now, and. Getting back to normal stuff. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Normal <laughs> things for normal mm. people. Yeah. And, you know, after all that happy interlude of fun that we had while we were in Seattle, now we get to tell you a really sad story. Oh. Do we like sad stories? Well, <laughs> no. Nobody <laughs> likes sad stories. But this one grabbed my attention um, one night after we got home. And so... I had originally planned on a whole different topic for today, but I switched it Okay. to this one okay. because I thought it was actually a really crazy story. It's it's good. It is sad. And I'm going to say right now, if you guys hear my dog barking in the background, I apologize. That's all I can do because the dog will not stop yapping. Anyway, um, it's it's sad, but but it's good. It's good. So it just baffles me that when people get mad at their parents, you don't think they're going to go to extremes the way that this guy did. But mental illness is real. And while it's hard to understand why people react the way they do, it's something that we can't predict. And that's what kind of happened in this case. This guy just kind of went off. Went off the deep end here. Yeah. So it was 
it was all it all came like I don't know. It was all kind of like revealed with a 911 call in Pampa, Texas. And I know this is not how I usually start my stories, but I it's it's fitting the way that this story played out. Pampa, Texas is in the panhandle of Texas, way up north. It's pretty quiet. There's a lot of farmland and nothing around for miles. It's actually really pretty up there, but it lies in the plains, so it's not like there are views, but you can see for miles. And a family of four lived in a nearly isolated farmhouse. And the mom, Michelle, stepdad, Brian, an older son, Zach, and a daughter named Robin Doan. And the mom, Michelle, was six months pregnant at the time of the 911 call. And, of course, they they also had the family dog named Molly, which um, is relevant. So that's why I mentioned Molly. Um, on September 30th, 2005, 10-year-old Robin Doan called 911. It was It was crazy. What happened was Robin woke up to the sound of gunshots in her home. She would later tell police that she heard 15 shots total, and that was exactly how many shells the police found at the crime scene. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's accurate. She she was really on point with mm. what, what she remembered. That's good. She told 48 Hours that she had been having a nightmare that night, and she remembered hearing gunshots in her dream, but when she woke up, the gunshots were still going. Mm. So she heard her mom screaming over and over, too. And this has got to be terrifying for a 10-year-old girl to, to wake, wake up, up to. to. Yeah. She said she jumped out of bed and crouched down by the door. She heard the perpetrator stomping around through the house, heading toward her bedroom. So she got really scared and ran as fast as she could to get back to her bed where she tr- she pretended to be asleep, hoping, kind of hoping he'd just go away. Because mm-hmm. who wants to kill a little girl, right? The man fired two shots at her. One of them grazed her left leg and left arm, and she let out this groan and slid off the bed, landing on the floor, and she just stayed there. So he thought she was dead. Uh, the other bullet had hit a plastic drawer in her bedroom. Okay. And this is ultimately what saved her life. What a smart little girl. Right? <clears throat> For 10 years old to think yeah, of doing that. Amazing. She said after he had shot her, he turned and went to her brother's room and she heard more gunfire and her brother groaning, which is so sad. Yeah. She played dead for two and a half hours. And keep in mind, she's only 10 years old. So this really was impressive to me that she was able to do all of this. Mm-hmm. She said while she was laying there playing dead, she heard the perpetrator rummaging around in the kitchen and she couldn't tell when he had left. She had no idea if he was gone or not. So she finally decided that she couldn't just lay there anymore, that she needed to go and get help. So she got up, ran out the door, and called 911. And this is the call. It's it's sad. You can hear how scared she was, and I, I can't even imagine what she went through. Sheriff's office, 911. Ma'am, uh-huh. there was a shootout in my house. Um, I don't know who's alive in my house. I'm scared. Where are you at? Um, Drive off of any kind. Oh, ma'am. You just heard 
just heard the shots fired. And I heard I saw the lights on in the kitchen, so I'm assuming they stole some stuff. Okay, okay. <laughs> As you can hear, she stayed on the phone with the 911 operator until the police arrived, and she told 48 hours that it felt like they were taking forever, but they didn't take long to get there. You know how it is mm-hmm. when you're under stress and you think, "Oh yeah, that I'm, I'm not getting out of this. I don't know what's going on. Right. When are they going to get here? Right, or right. How and fast is this going to happen? Like, yeah. As far as I'm getting here to help? Right. Yeah, I can so I, I didn't find anything about how long it actually did take them to get there, but but it was it was pretty quick, according like to the nine one one operators and the police on the the episode of Forty Eight Hours I was watching that night. Mm-hmm. But she said she felt like she was sitting there outside by herself on the phone, just wanting her mom. As you heard on the nine one one call, she just really wanted her mom to come outside and and hold her hand and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But she. She waited, and when the first officer arrived on scene, she ran straight to him, and he hugged her, and he remembered Robin telling him everything that happened to her in detail. She sort of just started blurting it all out, like, this is what happened. This is what was going on, and the 911 operator was really good. She stayed on the phone with her the whole time, and he comforted her. Then he walked her to his patrol car and put her in it while he was he and the other officers drew their guns and went into the house to search it because she didn't stay in the house. She didn't try to see if someone was around or anything. Yeah. She straight ran out the door, mm-hmm. which is the smartest thing she could do. Cause if yeah. he was still there, yeah, she wouldn't, she got out of there. She wasn't held hostage or something right. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they said that they felt like they were walking into the all American family home. They said the coffee pot was set up to come on. Everything was in place. And there was evidence that the family was getting ready to welcome their new baby into their family. Cause oh, remember the yeah. mom is six months pregnant, right? They saw, the east door of the residence had been kicked open and they assumed that the shooter entered and immediately began shooting. Like he went in and just started shooting just people. Blazes of glory here. Yep. Okay. Brian had been shot three times, which is the stepdad. Mm-hmm. Michelle had been shot six times. And the dog Molly had been shot twice. Huh. So this guy even killed the family dog. Yeah. They said they didn't know how Robin hadn't been killed. The one bullet hitting the dresser next to her bed and the other grazing her was a miracle, uh-huh. pretty much. Yeah. Her brother, Zach, had been shot three times while laying in his bed, and it looked like Zach had never woken up and didn't know what had hit him. Man, heavy sleeper, mm-hmm. right? So the chief sent the first officer to to arrive back out to be with Robin and he went out to her and asked if asked her if you know there was anything he could do for her, and she said she wanted to go feed her animals. So they went and fed the farm animals. No. I know it, and that's that's such a ten year old response. Yeah, and I want to go feed my animals. Yeah, bless the, her heart. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. He said that they they while they were feeding the animals, 
Robin seemed to relax and she started telling him which animals had won prizes and how her brother had got first and second place in FFA competitions. And she then she would go back to she would go back and forth. So she would be all calm and talking and then she would go back to sobbing uncontrollably because she's realizing her family's gone. Yeah, this is horrible. Yeah. He remembers she finally asked him if her mom and Brian were going to walk out of the house and and the police had to tell her no. Yeah. And, and the police took her to her great grandma's house where family members and friends were around asking what's going on. And she couldn't answer them because she was just so scared and, and had tired, you yeah, know, yeah. she's 10 years old. Mm-hmm. 12 hours after the murders had happened, Robin was taken to the bridge children's advocacy center where she spoke with a child advocate and she didn't want to talk about what had happened again, but she knew she had to. So she told the advocate that she didn't want to sleep anymore, that she was too scared and, I can only imagine that kind of terror. Like she. That's bad. Yeah. She had to be. I I just can't even imagine it. Mm -hmm. The interview with the advocate was videotaped to be used as evidence, which is a good idea because they were planning on catching who this person, who this person was. And they didn't want a 10 year old to have to go sit on the stand and say it. So yes, she was able to remember that she saw white eyes and a white face. So the police knew that they were looking for a white man. She did glimpse him. She Uh didn't see a lot, but she saw a little bit. And she also remembered seeing a flash when the man shot into her room, which, you know, makes sense. It's a gunfire. She told them again that she had heard 15 shots fired that night and it all matched up. Nothing in her story changed. And it was found that all of this happened around 3 a.m. Dead of night. Like that's the witching hour or something, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah. So the police were very concerned about Robin's safety because they had no idea who'd done this and it would come out that there was a survivor. So they were worried that whoever did this might still be in the area and come after her again for Mm. whatever reason. Sure. Robin was staying with her biological dad at this point. And so they moved her, her biological dad, her stepmom and her stepsister into protective custody while they were investigating. And Robin wasn't even allowed to leave the house except for attending the funeral of her family. That's how they were keeping her safe. Mm -hmm. The funeral was for all three victims at the same time, and the Texas Rangers did surveillance at the funeral because the whole community turned up for it, and they had no idea who could have done it. So They're watching everybody. Yeah, they're they're watching for any type of suspicious activity. Mm -hmm. Of course, nothing came of it. The funerals went smoothly, no craziness. And the fact that there were no leads led to mass community fear, which makes sense. You're talking yeah. small town, rural America that... Some wild person just comes in and shoots up the whole family. Right, right. So yeah. people started locking their doors in places where they'd never locked their doors before. And mm-hmm. they kept, you know, guns that they usually kept locked up. They yeah. kept them unlocked and close and close to hand just in case right. someone broke into their house. I mean, yeah. this was like mass hysteria everywhere. The evidence that the police did have was the gun casings, which these become really important later, bloody footprints and some tire tracks from the property. They didn't have any DNA or fingerprints, and there was no burglary, so there was no motive to go on. The guy did take some food out of the kitchen, Mm -hmm. but nothing else. And what he touched, he took, so they didn't have any fingerprints or anything. Oh, jeez. A theory they developed was that it was a drug hit that ended up at the wrong house, but they never they never had anything that led to anything that pointed towards that. Yeah. And they were hitting dead ends. So the day before the murders in Pampa, on September 29, 2005, 
A man named Chad Brooks in Pineville, Missouri, got a call from a family member that said they couldn't reach his mom all day. So Chad tried to reach out to his mom by calling her house and then calling her cell phone, but he couldn't get to her either. And at first, he didn't even worry about it. He's like, mom's just out doing something. I'm not worried. Around lunchtime that day, though, since he still hadn't heard from her, he decided to go to her house and check on her. But when he got there, he found another family member standing outside of his mom's home. And he told him that his mom and grandpa had been killed. Oh, man. And the police were there and stuff. Yeah. To add to this, Chad had recently just lost his dad a couple of weeks before that. So now he's lost his mom, Mm -hmm. his dad, Mm -hmm. and his grandpa. Oh, wow. Chad's mom's name was Don McCool, and his grandpa was Orly McCool. And the police said a relative had gone to check on them, and they found the bodies. So when the police were called and they entered the home, they found a bullet casing and shell on the floor and found Don laying on the floor. The shell casings were foreign. They were Russian ammunition, not something you could just buy from Walmart or some local place. And while the police were studying the shell casings, another officer who had been called to a, a to another crime scene in the area, remembered responding to a burglary just down the road from the McCool's home the night before. And the man who contacted police about the burglary was Scott King, and he reported that his son Levi had broken into his gun safe and stolen some guns and ammo, and the ammo was the same kind that they were looking at. Oh. So now police have their suspect in Missouri, 23-year-old Levi King, right? Okay. And and you're probably think, wondering, like, what does this have to do with Robin Doan's It's, it's going to link up. Though. Yeah, it's going to link up. Levi was known to law enforcement. He'd been in trouble before. He'd gone to prison for burglarizing a neighbor's house and then burning it down. Oh, geez. Yeah, dude had some issues. He was sentenced to 14 years, but he only served three of them, and then he was sent to a halfway house. And this is where the justice, justice system failed. Yeah. Police discovered that he was missing from the halfway house and had been on the run for a week when they found Don and Orly's bodies. So police start putting all this together and they find that Orly's truck, a Dodge Dakota pickup, was gone. So they entered it into the nationwide database as stolen. They also entered a warrant at 11 p.m. that night for nationwide pickup. They said the crime felt completely random. There were there was no rhyme or reason to it. No connection to the couple, no trouble between them reported, no reason to kill them. Mm-hmm. The only thing police could come up with is that Levi needed a way to leave the area, so he broke in, killed Orly and Don, and stole the truck. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the day after the Pampa murders, on October 1st, 2005, Levi Scott was detained re-entering the U.S. from Mexico. So he made it all the way down to Mexico in this stolen truck. Yeah. I don't know why he was coming back. Yeah. Honestly. Like, what are you but, doing? Yeah. yeah. So when Levi was going through the checkpoint, he admitted to having guns in the back to the border to the border patrol. So they run his plates, find out the truck's stolen. Mm-hmm. So then the El Paso police take him to the police department and they interview him. They kept him until the Missouri investigators arrived. And only 15 minutes into the interview, Levi calmly confessed to killing Orly and Don, but he couldn't explain why he did it. During the interview, he said he fired one shot hitting Orly. He turned to leave and saw Dawn, and he said he shot her because he was panicking. Yeah. So he didn't know what was going to happen to him, and so he just killed her. So the Missouri investigators loaded up Levi and the stolen truck and headed back to Missouri. During their conversations on the way back to Missouri, Levi said 
he could still smell the sweat, gunpowder, and blood, and that it was a feeling better than any high he had ever experienced before. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, he's messed up. Yeah, he was getting a taste for something that he probably shouldn't have got a taste mm. for. So they get him back to Missouri. He's in jail for a week or two, and he starts asking to speak with investigators. So they go see him and took him out to this exercise yard instead of an interview room because they thought it might relax him a little bit more. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to them, and he says, quote, you know there are four more in Texas, end quote. And the investigator said at this point, because he had been in jail for two weeks, they don't know if they should believe him or not. Mm-hmm. They're like, what is this? There's no yeah. one trying to contact them from Texas. There's no one looking for the, for this guy. So... You know, why is he doing this? Is he trying to send them on a wild goose chase to right. look into crap and, yeah. I don't know, prolong his trial or, yeah. or push it out or something? Like, what's the point behind that? Mm-hmm. Nobody was asking about him, anything to do with Texas. So there was no reason for him to bring it up. However, Levi shared some details about the location, specifically focusing on a large cross that's off I-40 in that area. And there aren't many of them like it, so it kind of stood out to investigators. They're like, why is, how does he know? Or, About I mean, this, yeah, or what's, or what's, what's the, the deal with yeah. him specifically mentioning that? So the investigators reached out to the Texas Panhandle Police because that's where this cross was off I 40. Mm-hmm. They're, they're reaching out to them to find out if there's any open homicide cases, and they found out about Robin's family. So once they find out the story about Robin's family, they put together that Levi killed the McCools and then drove 500 miles where he stopped at the Conrad farm and killed them. Mm, my goodness. Mm-hmm. What he didn't know was that Robin had survived. Yeah. So he's thinking there's four bodies in right. Texas and there were three. There were three. Mm. When they contacted Pam- the Pampa Police Department, this blew their case wide open because they still had no leads and no yeah. had no clue what was going on. They didn't know what was going on yeah, in Missouri and El Paso. Yeah. 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 So this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So now they know who did it. They just don't know why. Yeah. Um, but before Texas can prosecute him, he has to stand trial in Missouri. He's already there. They've, yeah. they've got him. Right. And instead of going to trial, he took a plea de- deal to avoid the death penalty so he got two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. And all that happened pretty quickly in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Then he goes to Texas and he also takes a plea deal. Um, he pleads guilty in Texas, but they refuse to take the death penalty off the table. They're like, it's Texas. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're not taking it off. Right. So it took four years before they were able to go to trial. But they finally did, and the DA said it was only to determine sentencing. He had already pled guilty, so they knew he did it. Right. And this was primarily so that they could say, is he going to go on death row in Texas or go back to Missouri and serve out the life sentences? Mm -hmm. During his trial in Texas, it came out that Levi was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as an adolescent. And this is where it comes into play that they're trying to make the man look human. Mm -hmm. And he had issues. Sure. He did suffer from bipolar depression and was at times said to be schizophrenic. He was one of seven kids in his early years. He set fires and he killed animals for fun. Mm -hmm. Drug use was rampant in his home. His dad actually introduced him to marijuana and hard alcohol as a teenager. And he started using meth and heroin. His family was very poor, very dirty. 
There were guns, knives, and swords hanging on all the walls, along with moldy, disintegrating insulation that was showing instead of sheetrock on the walls. Oh, geez. Right. This was what he was raised in. Yeah. And instead of prioritizing paying bills and getting groceries, they bought ammo. That was was their thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the defense used all of this to paint a picture of a failed poor boy who didn't know any better and couldn't be helped. Mm -hmm. But the prosecution pointed out that there are a whole lot of people out there who grow up in these types of environments and they don't go around on killing sprees, which is 100% true. Yeah. Look how I grew up. Right. Not much better than what I just described about how he grew up. Mm -hmm. and, And I am not out there murdering people. Right. So... Just want to say it's a good point to make. (laughs) They pointed out that he likes the smell of blood and gunpowder and just didn't care about what he was doing or the lives he was taking. And I think it's evidence enough that he mentioned it to the police that he liked it. Yes. That says a lot about you. Yeah. You didn't say, I'm so sorry. You didn't feel any remorse. remorse. You you didn't say... Mm This, I, I was horrible and I was scared. You didn't do any of that for yeah. yourself. No, you said, I liked it. Right. Dude. Yeah. You're jacked up in mm. worse ways than I can think of. I mean, <clears throat> his family life and all that, I mean, it helped create the monster. He may have already been a person that was not a great person to right. begin with, but then it just added fuel to the fire. Yeah. Yeah. Just that. Just personalities can, I think, probably being put in certain environments, you're just adding to that. Yeah. Making them more capable or becoming who they become. Absolutely. So. Yep. And I think he's that case. So Robin also testified at the trial and she faced Levi, you know, the man who killed her family Mm -hmm. and also tried to kill her. Mm -hmm. And she said she did it to be their voice since they weren't there anymore to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, and at this point, she's about 15 she's years old. She's a teenager, mm-hmm. yeah. And, it, I mean, this takes a lot for her, 14 or 15 years old, mm-hmm. to sit there and look at this man. Yeah. She said she tried to avoid looking at him, actually, and but she finally couldn't anymore while she's up there. And when she did, she said the person looking back at her was cold and unfeeling. She could just tell, and she said it gave her chills. Yeah. So during her testimony, she said directly to Levi, quote, I've endured this, but you're not taking my life away from me. I'm not giving you that kind of control, end quote. Good. So she's she's a strong young lady. Mm-hmm. Um, she told 48 Hours that she forgave Levi, not for his peace of mind or because of any kind of benefit for him, but for herself. She's, sure. She said it was for her own peace of mind, and she said it was how she was raised, and it was evidence of her family coming out of her yeah. that he took away from her. So for her, that was also a strength of character thing. Mm-hmm. So the end of the trial comes and the jury deliberated for seven or eight hours and they came back in and gave him life without parole instead of the death penalty. Okay. And this was actually upsetting to Robin when I was watching the thing and reading some of the articles. She said um, that she felt like she failed the prosecution when he didn't get the death penalty, mm-hmm. that it was something that she did. And they had to actually comfort her and just be like, no, it, it was not up to you. You did everything that you were supposed to do and everything you could do. The jury, it was said that they weren't unanimous. So 
people thought that that would end up in a mistrial or yeah. something, but yeah. it didn't. What happened was they didn't want him to get a mistrial and have to waste all that time again and go through it again and put Robin through it again. So only one juror wanted the life without parole. All 11 others were like death penalty. But when in a thing, in a situation like that, mm-hmm. you either are, have a hung jury, do a mistrial, or you uh, compromise. And, right. and they came to the compromise mm-hmm. of giving them like, that yeah. one juror their yeah. way and did not give him the death penalty. Yeah. So then Levi was extradited back to Missouri to serve a sentence. And Robin is working on a career in law enforcement. And she has kept in close contact with the deputy that responded that day. And hopefully is living a good life. Yeah. I know this was, it's a sad story. I, I, all I can say is that at least it got, it got some justice and there weren't more victims than what there ended up being. But it was said that Levi did all this in a temper tantrum, not just to leave, but he was also mad at his father and that's why he robbed his father and then killed Donna. Have a great weekend. Stole that truck, killed Robin's family headed to Mexico. Jeez. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. I'm glad he they had, got this guy. Yeah. He had all the makings of a serial killer though. If you think about it, look yes. at that little oh, brief excerpt yeah. of his background, him starting fires, um, killing animals yeah. for fun. Yeah. Not for food oh, yeah. or he, something he, like, he, like he had all the makings yes. of a serial killer yeah. growing up poor yeah. drugs, the whole nine yards. Like yeah. he, I think it's a blessing that he was caught, that he was stupid and got caught, you know, yes. like you, he, he went to Mexico and came back. You, he could have gotten away with it. Could have stayed, stayed in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. But there'd probably be bodies in Mexico. They just found he, the truck he was driving. Right. If right. He would have, you know. Yeah. So not came back in that vehicle and left it in Mexico. Oh, yeah, that that too. too. That too. Or what have you. Stole another car. Yeah. Drove it across the border. Yeah, I don't know. There's so many things he could have done. He he was just stupid, and I'm glad he was. I'm glad he was too. And I'm glad he told the Border Patrol, yeah, I have guns in the back there. Yeah. Right. Dude. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Make them dig deeper. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm (laughs) glad people are stupid sometimes. The stupidity saves lives. It does. (laughs) It does. So, yeah, that's it. All right. Well, let us know what you think about this episode. You can contact us at wickednesstruecrime at yahoo.com. Check us out at our website at wickednesstruecrimeandtheunknown.com. Follow us on Instagram and check out our Facebook at wickednesstruecrime. Follow us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash wickedness, where you also can support us if you want to lend us your support by clicking on the support button. Last but not least, please rate and review us so we can get our podcast out to more people. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Have a great week and bye. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Bye.